National Archives podcast series, Waterloo Men, the records of Wellington's Waterloo Army, presented by Carol Duvell. This talk was recorded on the 26th of June, 2015, at the National Archives, Q. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I make an apology before I start. If I start coughing and spluttering, I've got one of these wretched summer colds that hangs around and, you know, chooses not to go. I will do my best, but... Uh, Please bear with me. Um, as Emily said, uh, I was a teacher. I was an English teacher. I always like to get that in. I didn't enjoy teaching history. But I always had this great interest in, in history, and particularly in the period, the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, which just happens, of course, to be the period of the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. I will be quite honest, I came to it via literature, but then if you teach literature, you need to know something about the period, don't you? Um, and I'm glad to say that uh, I no longer try and um, infuse people about the joys of Shakespeare, Milton, etc., etc., and I can just uh, write what I want to. Um, now, I'm not blowing my own trumpet. This really is to just to say where I'm coming from. I have, in fact, written four books. The first two were on the 30th foot, and it's far too long a story to explain why I finished up with the 30th foot. Uh, suffice to say, I got to know them so well that I even had dreams that I was on route marches with them. That's how bad it can get. Um, that research led to two books. The first one, Red Coats Against Napoleon, is basically the story of what the regiment did. And yes, I did use uh, some of the uh, documents held by the National Archives, but I used lots of other sources, obviously journals, letters, etc., etc. Um, the second book, however, which uh, was what was I going to do with all this research I'd been doing, is this one. It's called Inside the Regiment. And it was an attempt to actually analyze and discuss and describe how a regiment functioned and for that there is a wealth of material because the great joy of the army is it never throws anything away so there's all this material that probably well some of it I have to say particularly things like courts martial when I got them out of the box I swear they hadn't been touched since somebody tied a string around them and put them in the box that led um bless my publishers, to this one, which is called Napoleonic Lives. And this was actually quite a challenge. I think it always is if somebody asks you to write a book rather than one you've chosen to write yourself. Because they wanted a range, as the book suggests, of people who had different experiences during the revolutionary and Napoleonic lives. We did have a long discussion as to whether I should write about a sailor, and I made it quite clear that was way outside my experience, but I would find a soldier who served as a Marine, which is what I did. Uh, that actually was quite a different kind of research. And one of the things I want to do later on is to look at two soldiers, both at Waterloo, one of whom is the product of my research on the 30th, and the other of whom is the product of research done for this book. And it has to be said, the, the tactics were completely different. I might add, I have written actually a fourth book. It's called Wellington's Worst Scrape. It's about the retreat from Burgos. Um, and there again, the records proved invaluable because it's always nice when you write a book to feel I'm going to present a different view. And I wanted to present the view that Wellington didn't lose as many men as people like Napier have always said he did. And so where do you go? Well, you go to the casualty returns. However, we're focusing on Waterloo men. And I would stress it is men. I'm not... Um, wandering into officers. They are they tend to require completely different records. And 
as I said, they're records of Wellington's Waterloo Army. They're records of the army of this period. But we had the bicentenary last Thursday, so it seemed only right. We ought to get Waterloo into it somewhere. So where do you start? Well, if you're very lucky, and I will say that I have probably seen all the records of the survive of the men of the 30th between 1789 and 1829, and I've only seen one of these. This is, of course, an att attestation paper. This is the beginning, if you like, of a man's entry into the records of the War Office. And it was very much the way he would be recorded, and that would, if you like, follow him through his military career. Now, I wouldn't expect you to be able to read all the questions, but basically it's, you know, what is your name? Where were you born? How old are you, or rather, how old do you think you are? Because people were too sure about how old they were. Um, what is your trade or calling? For which, in 79% of cases, approximately, the answer would be labourer. Uh, however, um, and, uh, as uh, we've got here, this is actually, I should say, a record from 1835, outside the period, but it is identical to those that were used later. Um, and we put the questions go on. They had to, of course, attest that they weren't in the militia, they weren't an apprentice, you couldn't break your apprenticeship and go into the army, and so on and so forth. I suppose it was also important to know if they were married, because, of course, a married man um, had a wife attached. And all right, he might be a married man trying to get away from his wife. Uh, one of uh, Wellington's often repeated ideas was that the scum of the earth he called them on a couple of occasions, enlisted for drink or to escape what today I think we would call a shotgun marriage. Um, I have to say, I've never found uh, a man who fits that uh, description, but perhaps those who uh, wrote about why they joined the army would have been a little bit coy if that had been the reason. Just to go on a little bit further, um, we have the description of the man. This was important because there were people who made quite a, a useful financially but very dangerous living out of, I was going to say jumping ship, but actually jumping regiment. This was particularly noticeable in Ireland. I was quite amazed, actually, when I was uh, working with Irish records, how often you find, not just in the 30th, but in other regiments as well, taken as a deserter from and it'll be some other regiment. Well, of course, this helped a bit. And um, certainly Dublin Castle, and I imagine the War Office was doing the same, were constantly circulating documents um, with a description of a man who had absconded from his regiment and was suspected of going into another regiment. It is worth saying that the man in this case got three pounds as his bounty. There's no desperate need for soldiers in 1835. By 1812, the bounty well, back in 1812, the bounty was £12. So you can see it might be quite a good idea um, to jump regiment if you could get away with it. Finally, there's the surgeon's report. Um, basically, the man needed two arms, two legs. If he was going into the infantry, he needed good teeth. Of course, otherwise, he wouldn't be able to uh, bite the cartridge to get the powder into his musket. Um, and... Really, that was about it. There was a height requirement. It was five foot six. Well, we'll see later on that that was not very rigorously observed. Oh, just a word. I, I, like, I like this image so much. I can never resist showing it. 
Um, this is a sergeant of the 33rd foot, known as the Havercakes. And if you look to see what's the end of, on the end of his sword, you can see why they're called the Havercakes, uh, because they used to have these big oatmeal cakes that they used to offer, presumably, to very hungry, probably rather drunk, um, habitues of pubs uh, to take the king's shilling. Well, that is the, the king's shilling up above. As a man enlisted, and this is some relevance for later on in the talk, uh, there were certain articles of war which had to be read to them. Now, it would take too long to read them in full, so I've made a digest of them. Mutiny. Obviously, mutiny is a very, very serious offence, and any mutineer would almost certainly be hung up or shot. Desertion. Well... Desertion was almost commonplace. It's amazing how often people deserted and were brought back drunk. I think that more or less sums up what one of the biggest causes of desertion were. Sometimes men deserted for quite a long period, and you actually find yourself wondering what they did. One of the men I wrote about in uh, Napoleonic Lives, it was actually the man who served as a Marine. Um, he actually served as a Marine on Nelson's ships, Agamemnon and Captain at the Battle of Cape St. Vincent, so um, obviously very well regarded. When he came back to England after a period in Ireland, he actually deserted on the march from Essex up to South Yorkshire. And I thought, well, this is odd. He disappeared for about three weeks. I then worked out that he actually came from South Lincolnshire, and it wouldn't be too much of a diversion to pop off home. He hadn't seen his family for probably about eight years, so I suspect the temptation was too much. However, he went back. Uh, quarrels and sending challenges, that's the last thing you want, of course, in a, in a unit, <coughs> quarrels of men. That, possibly, the sending of challenges was more common among the officers, but certainly quarrels happen um, quite frequently uh, in the ranks. And then there's the, the requirements of behaviour in quarters, garrison, or in the field. And finally, they were told about the administration of justice. Interestingly, and this is a basis of another talk altogether, so I won't say much about it, the actual procedures of courts martial was in many way more, ways more enlightened than the procedures in the civil court. But that, as I say, is another issue. And here he is, the man, or the men. They're learning on the far side to stand like soldiers. That was the starting point. You can see that the next group are learning to march. And so it went on. Drill was very much at the heart of a soldier's life. And even when you're on active service, you were still subjected to drill. In fact, it was a very useful punishment for those who mildly misbehave themselves. Extra drill. Specific period of extra drill. Interestingly, in the... Uh, diary of the adjutant of the 30th, when they were out, they were actually out on the lines of Torres Vedras, and if you know that part of Portugal, you know it's a very hilly part of Portugal, and they were up uh, Mount Sobral, but they were still doing drill, but they weren't doing it very well. I'm not actually surprised, you know, kind of slopes like this. One wonders how they managed to do it at all. Right, so I've said, and I've said a lot about the attestation process through to um, the training and so on, but this is probably where most people, if they're looking for a soldier, will start. 
WO97 or WO119, the pension documents. By the way, I have got a slide at the end that's got the numbers of all the, the documents I'm specifically going to talk about. This is actually the discharge paper of Daniel Nicholl, who um, served in the 92nd foot. He was a soldier for 20 years, 1794 to 1814. Uh, he spent time as a, a, a prisoner of the French, and I might not be able to see it, but we're told that he has a, a mark of a wound on his leg. Unfortunately, um, Daniel Nicol um, wrote an account of his military experiences. He was in Egypt as well as in, in Portugal and Spain because he took his wound at the Battle of Talavera. And being wounded, he was unable to march off with the rest of the British troops, indeed the Spanish troops as well, left behind, um, rescued by the French, very well treated by the French. In fact, he was a Scot and he spoke French, which I think might have been a definite advantage. But uh, it's quite interesting that even all those years later, this, this wound was still significant. Again, we shall see another example of that later on. It's the other half of his discharge papers. Normally there's a comment on conduct, but for some reason it's not on this one. But the, the discharge papers will tell you a man's service. They will tell you which regiment or regiments he served with. They will include exactly that same description that was in the attestation papers. Or expect if a man had grown a bit, they might have altered that. So it's a replica of the initial information and then the additional information of the man's um, conclusion, if you like, to his career. Of course, there are the men who don't make it to a pension. There are, unfortunately, the men who survive to be discharged but don't get a pension. And they are very frustrating, of course, because you know, where do you go next? Just to check, the obvious thing to do is to look at the casualty returns. Now, these are the casualty returns, two pages of them, as we shall see, of the 7th Hussars one of Wellington's light cavalry regiments at Waterloo. And in fact, this is um, from 25th of May to the 24th of June. So this is, in fact, uh, Waterloo casualties. Two officers, because both officers and men appear in the casualty returns. Um, and you'll see we have Edward Hodge, Major Edward Hodge, um, plus the adjutant, uh, both posted missing, They'd actually, uh, they were actually killed, although the regiment didn't realise that, because it was during the retreat from Catra to Waterloo on the 17th. An action near Genap, the 7th Hussars were sent in to drive some French uh, cavalry back. Unfortunately, they didn't manage it, and these two men, very sadly, uh, were killed. It was finally the lifeguards that dealt with the heavy cavalry, probably what was needed in the first place. And these are the men, but this is a later one. This is the next month. This is June to July. So we're seeing a lot of men who died of wounds because, of course, um, although an amazing number of men did recover from their Waterloo wounds, there were a great many who didn't. So casualty returns will not only tell you when a man died and whether he died a natural death or was killed or died of wounds, or deserted 
deserters are included in the casualty returns, then at least it puts the closure, doesn't it, to the story. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.